You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is in the book of Revelation, of course, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. If you want to use the Black Pew Bible that may be under a seat in front of you, you can find that uh, on page 195, I believe it is. Well, we have heard comforting truth this morning in the songs that we have sung. We just sang those those incredible words that it is well with my soul. Those words have so much depth and truth for us as Christians because we know that it is the paramount gospel that makes even the most difficult things in the world well with our souls. On top of that, I was captivated for a moment as we were reading together in the responsive reading that question and answer from the New City Catechism about how the Holy Spirit helps us and just noticing some of the things that he does that I often overlook. I am very quick to recognize that the Holy Spirit convicts, that he convicts us, but I'm very slow to recognize how he comforts us. And that was a reminder to me of just how important it is to be the kind of people who know how to deliver an apt word. You know, I think that few things are better than someone who knows the right thing to say at the right time. If you had friends like that, friends or family members who just always seem to know the right thing to say at the right time. I have longed to be that kind of person and have often failed. I hope that every now and then I may get that right because I see how important it is. Being able to deliver an apt word, the right word at the right moment is a gift and it is certainly an art. It is the stuff of greeting cards. In fact, one passage of scripture, a verse in Proverbs stands out in my mind that often finds its way even into random routine greeting cards in the world. It's Proverbs 25, 11. You may have heard this before. It's actually one of those verses that it sounds like one because it's so commonly used that maybe someone might use to stump me in my Bible knowledge. They may give me two truths and a lie, give me three verses and ask me which one is not in the Bible. You know, it's sort of like the one, God helps those who help themselves. Many people think that's in the Bible, but it's not. This is one that I think might fall into there, but in fact, it is immortalized for us in Proverbs 25, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken at the proper time. There it is. It's that gift and art of being able to deliver the apt, often comforting word. I like the way the NIV puts this as well. It says that like apples of gold in settings of silver is a ruling rightly given. This is sort of reminding us of what it might be like to be in a courtroom when a verdict is read and the verdict is gotten right. For those who want to hear it, it's comforting, it's assuring. Well, as we continue on in our series of the book of Revelation, we are reminded that the book of Revelation is not just written in a vacuum, it's actually written to certain people in a certain time, and these people are going through incredibly difficult persecution and suffering in the world. 
And therefore, it is written not only to tell about things coming in the future, but also to give present comfort. In fact, the book of Revelation, like all of Scripture, is a voice delivering the right word at the right time. And so here we have an apt word of comfort and victory given to these people who are in Christ, who desperately need this message. And we find even ourselves to be those people today. And so what we want to see this morning is two points from this text. I know two, not three. Normally it's three, so you may be happy about that. If you think it's going to be any shorter, it probably won't. But two points from this text that are, in fact, two points, strangely, about two wars. I never thought that, that a, a passage about wars could be so comforting to our souls, but it's my prayer that we'll find that this morning as we consider two points about two wars to give us hope and courage today in the face of a real enemy. Over recent weeks, if you're visiting with us, we have been, since the beginning of the year, preaching through the book of Revelation. So we just sort of take it passage by passage and and see what God has to say to us in that passage and then move on to the next. And, And recently, we have been reading quite a bit about our enemy, who is the devil. And we have read some terrifying passages about the devil's wishes and his his hell-bent nature and his desire to stop God's redemptive plan. In fact, being pictured as a dragon who is waiting before the church, who is, who is giving birth to Christ the Redeemer, and he's waiting, salivating, panting like a dragon, ready to devour that child. And yet God preserves his redemptive plan. Well, we're reminded throughout Revelation that their enemy, this enemy, is in fact our enemy. And so we want to know what the Word of God says to us. What is that right word at the right time so that we can be prepared, so that it can be well with our souls, even when we are in a fallen world, facing a real enemy as people who have our own sinful flesh to deal with? We want to see that in two points this morning. Here's the first point about the first war. It is that Satan waged war in heaven and lost. Satan waged war in heaven and lost. As I said a moment ago, Revelation 12, 1 through 6 is where we've read about this promised child, the Redeemer. And now in verses 7 through 12, that's not our total text for this morning, but just this this next bit, 7 through 12, what we have is a kind of replay of Christ's victory over Satan and over his angels. We read about this war in verse 7, Where John says there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And then in verse 8, they did not prevail, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Once again, this is an incredible image or picture that's being presented to us in the book of Revelation keying in on this reality of war. And not just an earthly war, a war that seems to be in heaven. There is a spiritual war. In fact, as we look at the context, we see that this war is going on all the time that Jesus Christ was living and dying and being raised from the dead. A cosmic war was being waged in heaven. We're told about the participants of this war, Michael and the dragon. 
and their angels. These are Satan's angels, the demons, or those who were cast down with him in the beginning, the dark angels. This is who we think about when we talk about the devil, though we know that they are a limited group. They are not uh, innumerable. There's a certain number of them. They they are not uh, omnipresent. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They don't have all power. They're not everywhere at all times, but yet they are a formidable force. And so when we talk about the devil, we're talking about the devil himself, who here is referred to as the dragon, as well as his angels, his crowd, his minions, those who sort of do his bidding, though we know that all of his bidding in theirs is under the sovereign control of God. Even then, we feel the effects because as we think about them, we also think about their wiles their plots, their schemes, their works, their temptations, their accusations, their murderous hearts. And all they want to do is to thwart God's plan if they could, and they can't. And since they can't, to thwart God's people, to oppress them, to tempt them, to pull them away from Christ, perhaps even to cast them into hell if they could, though they cannot. And so we're encouraged by this as we see these players in the battle. But not only do we see the devil and his angels at work in this battle, but we also see Michael. Michael, who is referred to at other places in Scripture, though it's hard to get our minds and hearts around this, this idea of angels and who they are and what they are like from what we see here in the Bible that Michael is uh, some sort of archangel or a, a ruling angel. That's the way he's talked about in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. His name actually means, interestingly, Who is like God? And so here is Michael, who is like God, with his angels, waging a cosmic battle in heaven, all centered around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's here as we look at this scene of this war going on, as frightening as that is, and then we remember what I said at the beginning, that these are two points about two wars that are an apt word spoken to comfort people in their distress. The people of this time, which John is writing to at this point in history, but also because of the Holy Spirit's work through the, through the word of God to keep it together and to bring it to us, that this apt word is spoken to us as a comfort as well. We see some of this comfort in verse 8 when we read that they did not prevail and there was no longer a place found for them. Verse 9 says, the great dragon was thrown down. And then John goes on to describe him again, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is an incredible penalty because of losing the war that God cast down Satan and his angels onto the earth, but cast them out, and there was no place for them in heaven. As soon as I read this, I'm reminded of others who were cast out. And those two were at the very beginning of our Bibles, Adam and Eve, our first parents, with whom we sinned and with whom we were cast out. But there's a great difference between the casting out of Adam and Eve in the garden and the casting out of the devil and his angels, and that difference is God's purpose. 
when God casts out the devil and his angels, it is for the purpose of condemnation. But when God cast out Adam and Eve into the world out of the garden and then restricted them from saving themselves, if perhaps they could go back and eat of the tree of life in the garden and then be restored again, rather he cast them out, but it was not to condemn them. It was to shower them with grace because they are instrumental in this incredible redemptive plan, which we summarize in the word, the gospel, And it's the good news of what God intended to do about their sin by sending them into the world and then giving them a redeemer who would gather them and people from all over the world into his kingdom to exalt his grace and his glory and to give them everlasting joy in their hearts, dealing with their sin once and for all. That is why he cast them out, so that he might do this incredible redemptive work. But what we're reading about here in this casting out of the dragon and his angels is not for their redemption. It is actually for their destruction, and therefore it is for our comfort. You see, this is the the devil who deceives the whole world with the very purpose of preventing what God promises to bring about among his elect, the obedience and joy that can only be found in Christ. This is what the devil wants to thwart. This is what he wants to stop. This is why he is murderous and why he is panting and why he is salivating over any thought that he may be able to stop this chosen child from coming into the world. But all the while, while Jesus is living and dying and rising again, there's a great cosmic battle going on until The dragon is cast down. And why is he cast down? How is he cast down? What has cast him and his dark demons down? The victory of Jesus Christ on his cross. Notice next in verses 10 through 12 that we have sandwiched between two war accounts. There's the first one we've been reading. And then there is another one. But in between the two, we have a proclamation of victory. It almost is like a hymn. It is this incredible, exuberant message of victory and overcoming by Christ and that how we overcome even this dragon, this devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the testimony of what he has done. This is an incredible passage of scripture to see the way that this this plays out and even to hear this gospel announcement sandwiched between two wars. It is intended, certainly, to give us maximum hope and maximum comfort when it seems like war is raging all around and it cannot be stopped. Some of that war, we see it happening around the world in literal war. Sometimes we feel it going on in our own souls. There is a battle between sort of good and evil, our remaining sin and the good deposit of of Christ in our hearts and his Holy Spirit, we are at war and conflicted. Sometimes we're feeling this war at home. We're, We're arguing with one another. We're having other kinds of conflict and trouble. Even the spiritual war, the spiritual warfare that we feel as as the devil and his crowd and his wiles seem to be tempting and accusing us. Here is this incredible announcement of victory. Let's read this together, you in your hearts and me out loud. And as we read it, I want you to focus your mind. 
You might have a thousand other things going on. Focus your mind on these words. Take them in. Chew on them. Let them soak into your heart when you hear them, starting in verse 10. Then, John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven. And that voice was saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, verse 12, rejoice. You heavens and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you with great wrath knowing that he only has a short time. What's really central to these few verses that we've just read, verses 10 through 12, is that word that hinges right in the middle, and it is the word overcame. It is what keeps all of it together. It's what keeps together both the victory of Christ over the devil by his life, death, and resurrection, and then our future victory by future grace that God has promised to us, right hinging in the middle, is the reality that God's people and God's people alone can and do overcome. Here, because this is written in Greek, there's a Greek word used for overcome, which is, which is arraigned. Or it's a, it, it's a word that talks about when you face the law, when someone goes into court. Again, that same imagery is what we heard earlier in Proverbs 25.11, the way the NIV translates that. When you go into court and win a case or you maintain your cause, that's what it means to overcome. And that is such a a beautiful picture for us because that, in fact, is exactly what Christ has done. Did you read about what the devil was always doing in the presence of God, accusing those who belong to God, standing before the judge at the bar, accusing them, trying to have them convicted of sin when someone has already paid for their sin? And therefore, they are able to overcome because their cause has been maintained. That's what the word means. When you are an overcomer in Christ, you are so because your cause in Christ has been maintained. It's been upheld. A legal case has been delivered in your favor, in my favor. And we overcome. Notice the way that it talks about in verse 11, the overcoming. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. Now this, friends, is where I often go wrong because I, I have this tendency of just getting rolling in the reading and I just kind of gloss over the words. I might be thinking about spiritual things. I might be thinking about non-spiritual things, but I miss the point. I miss the depth and the richness of what the word of God says. Don't let this happen here. Anytime, especially, when the Bible is talking about how and why you overcome, don't miss the point. How do you overcome? You want to overcome, right? I hear that all the time. 
I hear all the time in my heart and yours that we want to overcome so many things in our lives. We, we feel all of this opposition, all of these losses and trials and temptations and troubles and anxieties, and we want to overcome them, and we don't seem to know how. Here it is. They overcame because, number one, of the blood of the Lamb. What does this blood of the perfect sacrificial lamb of Christ do for us? It absolves us. It washes us clean of our sin. It puts us into right fellowship with him by faith in him alone. This is what the blood of of Christ does for us. And therefore, we are able to overcome because something has changed about our relationship with God. And therefore, I think that this needs to be a major meditation of ours as Christians routinely rehearsing in the good news what does it mean to be made right with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. This ought to be a discipline. It ought to be a habit of ours to be comforting ourselves with this truth. But that's not all. There is another part of what helped them or caused them to overcome. It says they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. This again goes right back to what I feel like we're always talking about, and that's a good thing, in our church. We're always reminding one another of what the gospel is. What is it? It's an announcement of good news with no mixture of bad news whatsoever. Therefore, it is an announcement of what Jesus Christ has done for us and announced over us by grace alone, through faith alone. That's what the gospel is. That's the testimony. Sometimes we fall back into that old way of thinking, that performance-mindedness that we were thinking about this morning in ABF, and we think, well, the gospel is a list of commands. It's a list of things that I should be doing. I should be living out the gospel, but no, that's not what the gospel is. It's not a list of commands. It's not something that you and I can do. What is it? It's a testimony. It's an announcement. It's a message. It's not something for us to do. It's something for us to hear. So that brings us back to this common question that we seem to always be asking, well, then how? How does the gospel help me to overcome the most difficult things in life? Well, the gospel does this because it displaces It fills in our hearts, displacing any room that there would be for us to listen to or to serve anyone except Christ. The more that we hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, more about his grace, more about his joy, more about his patience and long-suffering with us, more about his forgiveness, more about his sovereignty and providence in our lives, more about his love for us. It drives out room. It fills in the space that we otherwise would be filling with anxieties and fears and conflicts and doubts and worries and all the rest. That's a good picture for us to be thinking about how much can we be filling our hearts with the gospel. That means that we should be listening over and over again to the gospel That's what the gospel is, right? It's a voice. It's an announcement. Therefore, we need to be listening, hearing with faith. That's how we come to Christ. That's how we stay in Christ and grow in Christ. 
but we need to be listening to that voice. And every voice that will deliver this good news, this announcement to us in the gospel. This imagery of voices is really helpful to me because I see so many ways that it, is, it applies to, to our even regular daily lives. In particular, if you know anything about the relationship between parents and children, there's something unique about voices. Children can make out on a playground filled with other children and parents their own parents' voice when they yell for them. When they say it's time to go, somehow that voice above all others will register with them and minister to them in such a way that they will act. And it actually goes the other way as well. Parents can be out somewhere, maybe the same playground, and they can hear the crying or screaming of their child above all the others and know, well, some spidey sense is picked up on a problem, and they know to run to their child. It's this interplay between the voices. It's the importance of voices. Well, I must say, we've said this before, that this is also one of the great dangers in the Christian life, is that we live in a world of competing voices, voices that sometimes have become too loud in our ears, Friends, some voices in the world have become louder to some Christians than the voice of God and his gospel. I want to say that again. Some voices in the world have become louder to some Christians than the voice of God and his gospel, his word, his church. Some voices in the world have become louder than the voices of your pastors, Some voices in the world have become louder than the voices of your faithful, true Christian friends who deliver you the comforting truth and the Holy Spirit uses to convict you and care for you. Some voices in the world have become louder than some of the books that we're reading as those voices leap off the page into our ears. Some voices in the world have become louder than than the faithful authorities that God has given to us. Sometimes those voices are the voice of our own heart because there's remaining sin in there. We have to be careful to not listen to or follow our own hearts in that blind kind of way that the world sometimes talks about. Sometimes those voices are political voices. That's been a big problem for churches, and particularly in our country. Political voices have and are louder right now to some Christians than the voice of God in his gospel. Some voices in the world, voices of the fear mongers, the conspiracy minded, the social media voices. And I almost hate to say that because I sound like a harper. Because I feel like we talk about that a lot, but maybe that's just because it's true. Maybe because that's important. Maybe it's because it's relentless. All of those voices that we're picking up in all of these places, online, offline, wherever it may be, in the government, in books, in our own hearts, are so loud, and they're crowding out the voice of Christ and his gospel. So what do we need? We need the voice of God in the gospel to ring in our ears, to keep taking this in and shut the other voices out. 
And so therefore, as we come to the end of this first point about this first war, here's the first use or application of this text. Know the way to spiritual victory. I assure you, the way is not by listening to those other voices. Just as the devil is at work in the world and at work in all of those things, he would love for you to listen to those well-intentioned voices. But we know the way to spiritual victory. What is it? It's overcoming the devil, not by our might, not by what sometimes is called ekbalistic ministry. That's like driving the devil out. We don't see anything like that in scripture for Christians in our age, but rather we overcome the devil by the continual work of his blood and the remembrance of the testimony of Christ, the good news. That's why we want to be hearing this gospel over and over again. That's the first war and the first point. One more. There was another war, and the second picture is one of war on earth. This is where we see that unlike Satan waging war in heaven and losing, Satan wages war on earth now and will lose. So what's happening in the world today? Satan is continuing his war on earth, but he's doing it in a unique way. He is doing it by stirring up persecution of all kinds against God's people. Let's look at these last verses that we have this morning, verses 13 through 17. In one chunk, follow along, and then we'll go back to them for the last moments that we have. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, which is an amazing thing, that says something about how he was thrown down. He didn't float down like he was skydiving. He suddenly saw that he was thrown down. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. This this woman, remember, is a symbol for the church. It's a symbol for the body of God's people through whom, because of his covenant promises, God was sending Christ out into the world in his redemptive plan. He persecuted the woman. But here's the good news again. We read this um, just last week, I think, in the passage previous to this. But the two wings of the great eagle, which is a little confusing, were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half time. Also, strange language there. We'll come back to that in a moment. Away from the presence of the serpent. So you see again this picture that when the the serpent wants to thwart God's plans, he can't because somehow God's anointed slip away. They just fly away on eagle's wings. They are protected. They are safe. They are cared for. But nevertheless, he does not give up. We go on in verse 15, the serpent hurled water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. It's almost like one last ditch effort to try to stop her as she's flying away with redemption in her wings. But then the earth, the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon had hurled out of his mouth. Now, what do you think happened next? If you haven't read ahead, you might think exactly what did happen. The dragon was enraged. 
You see what's going on in the heart of this dragon. This dragon's heart is a little bit like our heart often is when we have our hearts set on something and there's a ruling desire. The dragon's ruling desire is to thwart God's redemptive plan. You have ruling desires, I have them, and when we don't get them, this is usually what we do too. We're enraged. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So here's the picture of what's happening in the, in the world. Satan is continuing his war on earth by stirring up persecution against God's people of all kinds. This is why we see persecution throughout the world, in particular, uniquely against God's people, against Christians. Did you know the Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide? An average of 180 Christians around the world are killed every month for their faith. According to the U.S. Department of State, in more than 60 countries, there are only 195 Christians face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors because, specifically because of their faith in Christ. Twelve churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Twelve Christians are unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. And five Christians are abducted for faith-related reasons. Every day, the dragon is persecuting the people of God. But nevertheless, even in the midst of that, we hold our hope in what this text tells us, that in a unique, special way, the church is given wings to fly away to safety, nourished by God himself. That's what we read about here when the woman is is carried away on eagle's wings to her place, a special place for her, and then is nourished there. And again, we read that kind of strange language, nourish for a time, times, and a half time. It seems like that's kind of a reference back to 1 Kings 16 in the Old Testament when Elijah the prophet was miraculously fed by ravens in the wilderness. It's the same kind of imagery. It's another way of recalling from another angle God's faithfulness to his people even in the midst of wilderness and persecution. But I want you to notice this about the text. Where is our comfort in the midst of such difficult realities as persecution? It is that the dragon cannot prevail. What we're seeing over and over again from different angles and different ways, in fact, we see this all throughout Scripture, even in the very life and ministry of Jesus. You remember when the crowd was pressing in and they they wanted to do him harm and somehow it's always been mind-boggling to me, he just slips away. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. They're all around him. But that is God's way. He has a way of caring for those he loves. And here the church does it again. The people of God keep slipping away. But all the while that they slip away, what keeps happening in the heart of the dragon, of the devil, of Satan, continues to be enraged and wars on and on and on against those who obey and those who believe the good news of Jesus Christ. I think this is why the word of God tells us that all who are in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is because Satan is hell-bent on their destruction, if he can. The amazing reality is that he can't. And you know, I think that's what makes him, in part, so dangerous. Because that makes him insane. 
There is hardly anything more dangerous than an insane person. Because insane people will never relent. They don't have the sense they are deceived and deluded in such a way that even when all of the evidence is laid out before them, they cannot make the right decision. And so they continue on their path and the dragon continues on his persecuting path. He's defeated, he's powerless, and yet he continues on his war like a caged, rabid animal. And he will not be stopped until the very end. So what should we do? Well, I think what we should do is see the devil the way that Martin Luther, though imperfect, saw the devil. I want to read for you just a brief uh, quote from Martin Luther that brings so much of this together to encourage us in our overcoming of the devil's ways and hear what he says as the gospel comes to our rescue. He says, why should you fear? Why should you be afraid? Do you not know that the prince of this world has been judged? He is no Lord, no prince anymore. You have a different, a stronger Lord, Christ, who has overcome and bound him. Therefore, let the prince and God of this world look sour, bare his teeth, make a great noise, threaten, and act in an unmannerly way. He can do no more than a bad dog on a chain, which may bark, run here and there, tear at the chain, But because it is tied and you avoid it, it cannot bite you. So the devil acts toward every Christian. Therefore, everything depends on this, that we do not feel secure, but continue in the fear of God and in prayer. Then the chained dog cannot harm us. But this chained dog may at least frighten him who would be secure and go ahead without caution, although he may not come close enough to be bitten. That is such a helpful picture to me. Because it puts the devil in the proper place for us as Christians. That while the devil certainly has his teeth to bear, and certainly there is danger surrounding him and his heart is bent on destruction, yet he is God's devil. That he is within God's control and that God is putting on display his own glory by ordaining and orchestrating all the things that happen in relation to the devil so that he will receive the glory. Well, as we come to an end this morning, I want you to see just two truths that help sum this up for us. These are the reminders of who we are in Christ and what this text and many others tell us about the good news of Jesus Christ and how it helps us in the face of a very real, very serious, very bad dog. Number one, that we are overcomers in Christ. We saw that in verse 11. They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. This reminds me, pointing back uh, to Romans 8, verses 36 through 39. This is where some of that overcoming language comes back to us. And this is a great passage. I will give you one more with the, the second truth that we want to sum up with. And I hope that you'll take this passage, write down the address, uh, mark it in your Bible, and come back to it over and over again. This is how we need to hear the voices uh, of the gospel continually uh, echoing in our hearts. This is Romans 8, 36 through 39. The first part, the very first verse, you'll notice probably in your Bible, is in all caps. It's because it's pointing back to Psalm 44, 22. 
And that's a psalm where, where the psalmist is calling for God to wake up and come to his rescue. He's saying, come help us, come rescue us, we're in trouble. And yet it's left with a little tension there until we come here and we find out exactly how God rescues and how he answered that prayer of Psalm 44. This is the way the prayer goes. For your sake, we're killed all day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's when right after that he says, wake up, Lord, where are you? Come rescue us. We have the answer in Romans 8. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our hope. That's the gospel, that we are overcomers in Christ. But number two, in addition to that, as we saw in verse 14, that we are safe in Christ. Would you repeat these truths to yourself throughout the week? Would you remind yourself? Would you comfort yourself and comfort each other and comfort me with the truth that because of Christ we overcome and because of Christ we are safe? Listen to John 10, 27 through 30. Jesus says it himself about the importance of this voice. My sheep listen to my voice, not other voices. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is comforting truth. How often in these times do you feel unsafe? You feel the desperate pull of self-preservation and self-protection. You feel like you need to hedge all your bets, load up all all of the armor that you can so that you can protect and preserve yourself while you and I are already safe in Christ. As we come to a, a final close here with just a couple more points of application, we want to think about how we can be like these believers who when the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with her children and those being those who kept the commandments of God and held to the testimony of Jesus. This is our instruction. This is what the word of God is telling us we should do. Obey the commandments of God. Hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Obey and hold. Let me just share with you four aspects of this that we can take away and put to work in our hearts. Number one, what does it mean for us to obey and hold the gospel? It means, number one, that we love the gospel. It means that it's not enough just to be doers of the word, actually, actually to kind of reverse that passage on ourselves but we also want to be lovers of the gospel. So we need to be thinking about our love and and cultivating, with God's help, affection for the gospel. That happens only by repeated hearing and comfort in our hearts. Number two, we ought to give ourselves to knowing the gospel. 
The gospel is an announcement. It's made of words. It's something that we need to know and study and keep rehearsing. We can look, as this text has, at all different angles of Christ's victory. That's what's been happening through the book of Revelation. We should be doing that in our own lives so we know the gospel. Number two, love and know. Number three, of course, speak. When the gospel gets a hold of a human heart and transforms it and awakens it to faith in Christ, that person can't help like fire shut up in his bones to speak that gospel, to tell people about it, to tell the good news. It's always on their lips. Sometimes it's not on our lips. So we need to speak the gospel. We need this priority. And then number four, love, know, speak, live. Now this is an interesting one. Because we don't say that we ought to live the gospel because that's impossible. The gospel is not something that we do. But it is something that we live out of. We live in the implications of the gospel. We live in the blessings of the gospel. We live in what the gospel has done for us. And therefore, we want to live from the gospel. These four and others sure will fill our time and attention. They will help us not to be idle in the Christian life. I was reminded recently of what Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher of the past, said. He said that the idle man tempts the devil to tempt him. Well, we don't have any reason to be idle because we have our work cut out for us. It's the work of loving and knowing and speaking and living out of this good news that has captivated our hearts. That's the end of our application, and we can take this away and work on it together this week in community groups and in, in, in broader community together as believers. But before we pray, one final word from Luther. He says, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Again, such rich truth for us to carry into the remaining of our service and our songs together, even our prayers now. And I just want to encourage you, if you're visiting with us or perhaps you're watching this as a recording and you're not a Christian, today needs to be the day of your conversion. You need to come to Christ. You have nowhere else to go. But we know who is the victor. And he is welcoming us by his grace. And we pray that you would help us, uh, allow us to help you to come to him. We want to hear from you. We want to talk more about the gospel together, if that's where you are this morning. So please stand with me as we prepare our hearts to sing. And we pray to our God once again. Mm -hmm.